0: This is Cauldron, a military history podcast. And I'm your host, Cullen, and today we're talking about the Battle of Glenham. This campaign I see so very ill a prospect that I am extremely out of heart, end quote. So wrote the man most responsible for today's battle and one of Britain's greatest military victories, the Battle of Blenheim. All right. Thank you guys for joining me again. I know it's been a long time in between the uh, last episode and this current one. I'm very sorry for the delay, but as a fishmonger here in Maine, the summer season is the busiest time of year, and so things get kind of bumpy and chaotic. That being said, I am sticking to it. I will have more episodes coming. We have uh, Marengo, Assay, Tannenberg, Omdurman, Spy and Cop, The Invasion of Poland, and Fallujah all coming down the pipeline between now and Christmas, so stay tuned. Don't forget, share, rate, review, and subscribe if you can. I know uh, sometimes it's a pain in the neck to do that, but it really does help the show get heard by more people and uh, and seen more, which is eventually the goal to have plenty of people listening, and uh, I hope that can be the case. Uh, and that only happens if you guys help. So thank you again for everything that you've done. And uh, you know what? Let's get right to it. Let's get stuck in. Let's hop into the Way, Way Back Machine and head to August 13th, 1704. As I've covered before in the lead-up to this episode, and it's made pretty clear by the quote that we started this episode with, Marlborough went into the 1704 campaign season with somewhat less than an optimistic point of view. His situation strategically was pretty grim. It was true that the English and Dutch fleets had control of the seas and the coastline, and that he himself had won a few small but impressive victories in the first two years of the War of the Spanish Succession, but the odds were still stacked in the enemy's favor. France's Louis XIV, the Sun King, the absolutist monarch that we've talked about time and again, was keen to see his grandson sit upon the throne of Spain, especially considering that the country's last and very feeble ruler had willed his kingdom to Louis's grandson, Philip of Anjou. This would complete a decades-long struggle to join the two crowns and once and for all forestall the feared Habsburg encirclement of France. As the leading military force in Europe at this point in time, uh, France was on pretty good footing to ensure that Louis got what he wanted. Two years into the fighting, and French armies threatened the Dutch Republic's southern flank, maneuvered along the Rhine pretty much freely, had flipped the powerful South German state of Bavaria and had armies roaming northern Italy. Added to these clear threats, each which singularly would be enough to keep a commander up at night, Marlborough had to consider a Hungarian uprising which threatened Vienna and a Dutch ally that was proving needy and clingy and distrustful and rightfully so because the Dutch had Louis' Eye of Sauron blazing at them from Versailles. But Marlborough's war was a coalition one and he had to do everything in his power to keep that coalition strong while still achieving his main objective, which was the destruction of the enemy in the field. In a startlingly successful march from the Rhine to the Danube, Marlborough struck a masterful blow against his enemy and fooled his allies at the same time. He moved south with such speed and with such seeming lack of destination that both friend and foe assumed he was doing anything but the thing he was actually doing, aiming for Vienna. He recognized that if the French armies of Tallard, Valois, and the Elector of Bavaria, and even the forces in northern Italy, could combine near the Austrian capital city, they would have an overwhelming superiority. Added to that, the potential for the Hungarian rebels to join up with the French, and you might have a unmitigated disaster on your hands, likely a war-winning one for the French. Marlborough's brilliant march, in the words of one soldier, quotes, "Surely never was such a march carried on with more regularity and with less fatigue to man or horse end quote, traveled two hundred and fifty miles in a touch over five weeks. Most armies in history, on this kind of march, and at that speed, would have arrived half dead and in chaos if they arrived at all. Not so with Marlborough's men. The attention to detail, regular stops with cook fires and tents waiting, fresh shoes halfway through the march, food and fodder depots all along his seemingly willy-nilly path meant that Marlborough's army arrived in Bavaria in fine fighting form. The French realized after Marlborough passed Alsace, because they had assumed that his target was Alsace and the Moselle River, what he was up to, though, they realized, was... uh, Basically, he had stolen a march on them. They had to scramble to try and converge on the coalition army before it started picking off the far-flung French armies one by one. Tallard ran south to meet up with the Count of Marsin and the Elector of Bavaria, who were doing their best to slow Marlborough down. Marlborough wasn't alone, though. His right-hand man, the Prince Eugene of Savoy, a military man and mind of no small talent in his own right, was rushing south to his aid. Once together, they would have an army some 52 to 54,000 strong with 60-plus cannons. Check out the last episode to find out what happened at the Battle of Schellenberg, the lead-up to Blenheim. Suffice to say, though, that that event, with some hard fighting and heavy losses, led Marlborough to the situation he currently was in. He had a set line of communication now because of his victory at Schellenberg, and he had bases of operations on both the banks of the mighty Danube, the north and the south, and most importantly of all, he had the enemy reacting, moving to his direction, his tune. This, as we will see, becomes his greatest weapon. After the victorious slaughter at Schellenberg, Marlborough, to his shame, set his forces against the countryside of Bavaria. In an odd historical twist, the English waged something of a large-scale chevoucher, which was the medieval French raiding tactic that burned the countryside to try and get castles to submit. Marlborough used this tactic in a large scale to try and "...tempt the elector of Bavaria back into the fold of the coalition. It didn't work, and the murder, torching, pillaging, and raping was for naught. Interestingly, in his bio of his ancestor, Winston Churchill defended vehemently these actions as right and necessary in order to end the war quicker." which is interesting given what Churchill would later do to the German cities in World War II in the bombing campaigns. Now, I'm not passing judgment in any way, uh, and in fact, I probably agree with both of them that a a very harsh, brutal, but short war is is much more preferred than a long one, as we saw with World War I, Uh, but... I just think it's an interesting mirror or echo, uh, echo moment there historically. While savagely traipsing around the Bavarian countryside did nothing to turn the elector, it did, however, give tallard time to reach Marson and the elector's forces. Marlborough realized that facing these three enemies was going to be a nasty fight. If the French forces in Italy moved up and joined in, he'd be in the weeds for sure. Even though it lowered his effective fighting force in the field, Marlborough dispatched a force of men to the Italian borderlands to hold the enemy there in place. Addition by subtraction, he hoped. While Marlborough did this hard math, he and Eugene finally met face-to-face for a late-night conference on August the 5th. It was there that Eugene was sent with a force to take the fortress of Ingolstadt on the north bank of the Danube while Marlborough planned to move to the South Bank and present the French with the horns of a dilemma. And that was indeed the case, as Tallard had to choose what kind of fight he wanted. A rational general, fully aware of the power of the defense, Tallard wanted to sit tight and hold an effective base of operations, from which he could harass Marlborough's Danube campaign into the fall, and where, if he was attacked, he'd be reasonably safe and sure of victory. His co-commanders, Marson and the Elector, wanted to press on. They had been recently beaten by Marlborough on a number of occasions, and they wanted to kind of set the record straight. They urged Tallard to use the French army to attack Marlborough. The two men clamored for Tallard to get after their wily enemy before he had the time or ability to pull any tricks on them. So it was decided on the 9th to strike Prince Eugene's army on the north bank of the Danube in the Hochstadt Plain. Tallard, not unintelligently, wanted to use the overwhelming force on the smaller coalition army, hoping that Marlborough on the south bank would be unable to come in to support. Once Eugene's army was done in, Marlborough would be alone and hunted and Vienna once again open to assault. By the next day, Prince Eugene fully recognized his danger and fell back on Schellenberg while also sending a rider to his comrade Marlborough, notifying him of the situation and requesting a meetup at the village. Not for the first or the last time, the working relationship and mutual respect between these great commanders was on full display. As Marlborough received the note from Eugene, and without reservation or question, he pushed his men hard for Schellenberg. On the 11th, the Coalition Army was united. The two generals went out in search of the French, and on the 12th, they found them, behind the small Danube tributary, the River Nebel where they had dug in and fortified the village of Blenheim. The French believed they were in a strong enough position that nobody but a fool would attack them. Indeed, one witness recalled, quote, That night spirits were at their highest in the Franco-Bavarian camp, for no one doubted that Marlborough and Eugene would be forced to withdraw, end quote. Tallard, the French commander, even wrote to his master at Versailles that the situation was in hand and he was planning to pursue the coalition army to the ends of the earth. Events unfolded differently than he anticipated. Alright guys, really quickly here. I'm not being paid for this. It is totally just something that I think you might enjoy. Check out School of War. It's a podcast hosted by Aaron McLean, produced by me, and it covers pretty much the entire scope of the world of warfare. Military history, theorists, uh, tacticians, strategists, practitioners. We've had Jeremy Black on, Richard Overy. Uh, We've had H.R. McMaster, Barry Strauss. We just had Wesley Morgan on uh, and Brendan Sims so we're talking to authors and people that have been on the ground and it's a really wonderful way to experience all sorts of different avenues and aspects of warfare whether it's military history like i said or we've had kagan on and talked about the ukraine really it's worth listening to i can't recommend it enough please rate review subscribe and hopefully, if that gets big uh, and this gets big, then I can just produce content for you. So please go listen to that. I'm not begging, I'm just suggesting, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Observing the French from Wolperstetten, the coalition army noticed that they were outnumbered in men and guns, fifty six to sixty thousand French and ninety guns to Marlborough's 52,060 guns. Worse still, the French had made good use of their time in adding man-made defenses to the natural, which were, if not formidable, at the very least, challenging. Tallard formed his forces into a line stretched across a just over three-mile long line. On the far right, he anchored his army in the village of Blenheim, which, though not impenetrable, was surrounded by ditches, fences, outbuildings, and various impediments, and the town sat at the point where the Nebel River ran into the Danube. One of Europe's mightiest rivers guarded Tallard's right wing, and the Nebel, with its parallel running marshes, ran along almost his entire frontage. The Nebel itself was fordable, but the marshes on either side would certainly bog down Marlborough's forces, catching them in withering artillery fire with no recourse but to move onwards, which is what Tallard wanted. At about the center of the line was the village of Oberglau, fortified much the same as Blenheim, and again not impossible to capture but by no means a simple task for the coalition forces. From there, the French line ran to its very far left flank at the town of Lutzingen, again a town with easily converted and defended structures, and instead of the swift Danube as protection on its flank, Lutzingen had to its left the hills and dense forests of southern Germany. The forces that moved against Tallard's left would have much further to go and would need to cross heavily brambled thickets sprinkled with streams, bogs, marshes, and ditches. There are many aspects to good generalship, and neither having commanded men in battle nor fought anything more than a drunken dust-up, I make no claim to some secret knowledge. I'm not even a historian. I'm just a fan of history. That being said, I've read a lot, and the one thing that comes up among, among all the other things, time and time again, is when you're looking at the great commanders, they have this uncanny ability to force their enemy to fight the battle that they want. It's some kind of sleight of hand that boxes an opponent into a position where they feel compelled to react, even when it's against their best interests. Blenheim is an excellent case study for this, as Tallard had all the right cards, and Marlborough, though not having nothing, he certainly brought a knife to a gunfight, and yet he won. And he did this by playing into his enemy's fears. We'll play this out right now. Before dawn on the 13th, Marlborough dispatched Eugene on his mission, attack the French left flank vigorously. Marzin and the elector had 20,000-plus men, and the coalition forces facing them were just over 15,000. Marlborough made it clear to his friend and cohort this attack had to be vicious and had to not just look like it was the main push, but it had to feel that way to the French counterparts. They had to feel like this was the main push of the entire coalition army because Marlborough explained they needed to feel so hard-pressed that when the real attack came across the Nebel, with the coalition force of 36,000 men from Oberglau to Blenheim, Marzin and the Elector needed to be so concerned with their own frontage that they couldn't feel like they, they were able to part with a single man to lend tell, Tallard's 33,000 that would be under attack. Added to this whole plan... The French, under attack by Eugene, Marlborough stacked up a heavy column under Lieutenant General John Cutts, and he aimed them like a battering ram pointed at the town of Blenheim itself. The idea here is that with both flanks engulfed, Tallard would be so weakened in his center that when the main attack came, the French line would fold from the middle out. Picture if you roll up a a thing of Silly Putty or Play-Doh. When it's compact and it's small, it's strong, it's malleable. But as you pull on either end, eventually the center is going to sag and then break. This was Marlborough's hope, that the French reserves would be distributed to the left and the right, leaving nothing to... Uh, Support the center, and eventually the center would be so thinned out that when the British, uh, when the coalition forces attacked, the French would break. By mid morning, Marlborough hoped to have the deployment phase done. I could go into the minutiae of all the various battalions, squadrons, and such, but it's a lot. And I encourage you if that's your kind of thing, if that's your ballywack, go seek it out. The source material will be available. If you shoot me a DM or an email, I'll send it to you. Uh, it's just a ton of, of names and, and regiments and colors and all that stuff, which is in its own right very cool, very interesting. I just don't have the time, the energy, or, or truly the interest to go into the minutia of that. But, but please ask, and I'll send you what I have for source material marborough was hoping eugene would be in a place in in place to attack by about 10 or 11 in the morning but that rough terrain we talked about earlier slowed his men down considerably the prussians and danes under eugene would prove themselves exceptionally hard fighters but even they couldn't make any kind of speed in the junk that the french left had in front of them while they slogged along on the french right Cutts had his bulldozer column ready and pointed at Blenheim. Unfortunately, for them, though, Marlborough's plan was all about timing, and the two flank attacks had to happen simultaneously for the greatest effect. So for two hours, Cuts's men had to stand waiting for Eugene to get into place, and the entire group of Cuts's men, just had to withstand withering cannon fire from the French positions around Blenheim. But for all the bloody punishment that they endured, it was Cutts' men that sealed the deal for the French at the very beginning of the battle. At 1 p.m., a rider alerted Marlborough that Eugene was in position and shortly would begin his attack if it pleased his friend. Undoubtedly chuffed, Marlborough said it would very much please him and would Eugene please begin the attack. He then turned another rider loose towards Cutts, imploring him to begin his assault on Blenheim. Cutts' men were frothing and attacked with great vigor, but the first attack faltered. Chaos reigned and a second attack, just as bloody and vigorous, was also pushed back. It's at this point that a foolish French commander saw shadows. He heard footsteps. He believed that the day would be won or lost in the little village of Blenheim, and without checking with his CO, he sent Tallard's reserve forces into the little village. The French numerical superiority along the entire line was immediately shot to hell as Tallard's entire tactical reserve was crammed into the tiny town of Blenheim. Not only did they serve no purpose, but they actively hindered the fighting as French soldiers were so packed in that nobody could figure out what was going on and often found themselves pressing each other towards the enemy bayonets and guns. Marlborough realized that the French in Blenheim didn't necessarily need to die, and in fact, it would be more costly to try and take the town. All he needed to do was keep them penned up. He ordered cuts to hold the enemy in Blenheim, and essentially, he put under house arrest around 12,000 French troops at the minimal cost to the coalition numbers. On the left flank, the French were under very, very hot attack from Prince Eugene. He and his men were outnumbered and outgunned, but they persisted and they pushed. Eugene understood the intricacies of Marlborough's plan, and he got that this continued attack was really, really important, even though they were facing truly deadly cannon crossfire from the town of Lutzenjin all the way on the French left and Oberglau in the French center. And they were essentially basically raking them with inflating fire. The the Prussian and Danish infantry crossed the Nebel again and again, only to be sent reeling back across the little river. At one point, the two sides' cavalry clashed so fiercely that even though the French side won, it was too exhausted and spread out to pursue the coalition cavalry. The only thing that kept Eugene and his men in the fight was the presence, courage, and leadership of Prince Eugene of Savoy himself, and the fact that the French forces were just as tired, beat up, and as much in disarray as the coalition forces. While the fighting on either flank intensified and continued, the two generals, Tallard and Marlborough, stared across the Nebel, trying to decipher the other's plan. By mid-afternoon, Marlborough was on the move, urging his infantry and cavalry across the marshland and towards Tallard's forces. The British generals sent forward a cavalry force to mix it up with the French special force of gendarmes, and surprisingly, they sent the famous French cavalry riders running. This was good news for Marlborough and bleak stuff for Tallard. He immediately went to Marzin and the Elector and looked to siphon off some troops from the left flank of his line to try and help staunch up the center. Marzin and the Elector, unlike Eugene, declared that they were far too hard-pressed to spare a single man and that Tallard was on his own. Still, Tallard had a strong defensive line anchored by Oberglau on the left. If he could make a wedge between the coalition forces, he might be able to save the day. Marborough, for his part, realized that the, that the town of Oberglau had to be taken or neutralized before he sent his full force across the Nebel. If it wasn't, Oberglau would act as a staging position and a wedge for Tallard to devastate the coalition army's flank and roll up Marlborough's entire line. A Dutch column was sent to take the town, but heavy French fire, supported by the wild geese, a famous group of Irish warriors fighting under King Louis' banner, cut them down. Every general's worst nightmare now came to Marlborough. A gap was forming in his line, and if the French filled it, the jig was up. Gaps, especially in a line, especially in this time period and when dealing with coalition forces, often proved the nail in the coffin of even great commanders. On the modern battlefield, tactics are obviously less rigid, and keeping line integrity isn't a priority if it's even considered at all. But still, no soldier in any war in any period wants to look over, or worse, behind, and see an enemy force where they should see friendlies. For the first time in the battle, Marson looked not to the fight in front of him, but to his commanding officer, Tallard, and the grander scope. He sent a cavalry force at full tilt into that gap, heading at speed into Marlborough's now-exposed flank, and the battle was in the balance. Once more, the bond of Marlborough and Eugene proved its mettle. The British commander urgently requested aid from his hard-pressed friend, and without thought or resistance, Eugene delivered. He sent cuirassiers careening into Morrison's cavalry as they charged Marlborough's flank, thereby dispersing the threat to Marlborough and assisting in the neutralization of Oberglau. From that point on, the battle was all but decided. By 5 o'clock, after allowing some time for Eugene to reestablish his line, the entire coalition army moved forward. One account wrote, quote, With trumpets blaring and kettle drums crashing and standards tossing proudly above the plumage and the steel, the two long lines, perfectly timed from end to end, swung into a trot that quickened ever as they closed upon the French, end quote. The French cavalry, exhausted and unsupported, somehow still managed to push the front line of Marlborough's attack back, but they soon overstretched themselves and collapsed under the counterattack, fleeing pell-mell from the field. Then, with momentum on their side, the coalition forces swamped the French infanta- infantry. One witness wrote, quote, They died to a man where they stood, stationed right out in the open plain, supported by nobody. At this point in the battle, like in all pre-modern fighting, the casualties skyrocketed. Fleeing horsemen ran into the Danube, where thousands of Frenchmen and their sorry mounts drowned in the, the extreme speed and powerful flow of that great European river. Infantry, out in the open and without cavalry support, were ridden down in droves. Hundreds of desperate little last stands blossomed, withered, and died all ac- all across the plain between Sonderheim and Blenheim. Even Tallard himself, trying to salvage some kind of fighting force, found himself encircled and imprisoned. Upon being handed over to Marlborough, the British general displayed the etiquette of the time and a kind of grudging sportsmanship that the British warrior has been known for since with this famous line. He said, quote, I am very sorry that such a cruel misfortune should have fallen upon a soldier for whom I have the highest regard, end quote. He then penned on the back of a napkin a now famous note to his wife, quote, I have not time to say more, but to beg you will give my duty to the Queen and let her know her army has had a glorious victory. Quote. On the French left, the fighting raged on. Eugene again saw his cavalry repulsed, and after, after repeated failures, he'd had enough. Charging with the men in a last-dash onslaught, the coalition forces finally took the guns near Lutzengen. Marson and the Elector saw how the day was playing out, and like the rest of the French army, they turned tail and ran. The fighting had been too hard in this sector for any kind of organized pursuit to follow up victory, but the win was so complete Eugene can be forgiven. Meanwhile, across the other side of the long field of battle at Blenheim, The town of Blenheim itself stood, bristling with French guns and defenders, surrounded but unbeaten. For hours the coalition forces assaulted, and for hours they were pushed back. With the village burning and the enemy at hand and their main army destroyed, the defenders of Blenheim eventually saw sense and parlayed. 10,000 French warriors became POWs without having had a real hand in the overall battle. Quote, Such was the celebrated battle, which the French call the Battle of Hochstadt, the Germans Plentham, and the English Blenheim. The conquerors had about 5,000 killed and 8,000 wounded, the greater part being on the side of Prince Eugene. The French army was almost entirely destroyed. Of 60,000, so long victorious, there never reassembled more than 20,000 effectives. About 12,000 killed, 14,000 prisoners, all the cannon, a prodigious number of colors and standards, all the tents and equipages, the general of the army, 1,200 officers of mark in the power of the conqueror, signalized the day, wrote an exuberant Voltaire years after the battle. The Battle of Blenheim ended with a resounding coalition victory, and because the man that delivered it was from the tiny island in the north, that victory had a decidedly British, or English at the time, bent to it. In Churchill's summation, Blenheim, quote, changed the political axis of the world, end quote. Almost 30,000 Frenchmen lay dead, wounded, or imprisoned. For his part, Marlborough had lost a touch over 10,000. Sizable for sure, but as far as butcher's bills go, not too bad. The real aftermath was in the strategic realm. The field of Blenheim meant nothing really, other than it was the place chosen to have this fight out. Schellenberg was actually more strategically important, but the toll Blenheim took on French credibility cannot be overstated. It was the first truly disastrous defeat in the long reign of Louis the Sun King, and he never quite recovered. French armies before the battle, the most feared and experienced in the world, were shown for what they truly were, simply men capable of being poorly led and beaten, just like any other army. The elector of Bavaria lost his kingdom for all intents and purposes, and for the rest of the war, the coalition would have access to Bavaria's many resources. Added to that, the Habsburgs and Vienna were, were now safe and would continue the war with vigor, which was needed as the war raged on for another decade. But never again did the French have the power to dictate events or much prospects of victory. And the real historical truth was that at Blenheim, Marlborough ensured British dominance over the sea and an outsider's influence on the continent for the next 200-plus years, albeit with a few hiccups along the way. Looking at you, Bonaparte. In fact, one of the fascinating things about the outcome of the land victory of Blenheim is that it ensured British dominance of the trade routes on the high seas for the next 150 or so years. Because after Blenheim, you had a a true, clear, defined case of everybody agreeing okay, this little group, this British-English force, is very tough. They are hard to screw around with, so we'll let them play with their boats on the high seas, and we'll just focus on land. And it it was obviously a strategy that failed, because the the French uh, in India, in the, the West Indies, in the North American colonies... Had they had a stronger navy, they could have probably uh, supported those colonies much better and wouldn't have been quite so at the whim or uh, as exposed to the British as they ended up being. And if there were ever a naval force that was able to try and give the British a run for their money, it never really came about until the Germans in the early 1900s or, or even the United States. So Blenheim has this really far-reaching effect on history. It's also, this is pre-Waterloo. This is pre-Wellington. This is the first time, truly, even Agincourt and, and Cressy, those were battles where the British were not, they, they, they were outnumbered, they weren't supposed to win, and they were like the plucky underdog. It's at Blenheim where they show themselves to be a contender on the world stage and a a rising power, uh, and maybe an, a power that was had arrived. It, it was no longer rising; it, it had arrived on the world stage and said, "Hey, look at us. Uh, we are here to stay." And and Blenheim is that moment. In fact, Blenheim is is a touchstone for the entire. Empire because it's at this point where you really start to have a, a military identity. After the revolution and the series of wars brought on by the revolution in the 1600s, the British and English, they really didn't have much of a military identity. Even the Royal Navy was only kind of starting to get its legs under it from, from being a, a Drake type of, of semi-navy, supplemented by piracy it's at this point in the early 1700s where it's become this regulated wing and it is the dominant the uh i think they called it the the elder arm or, or somehow they signified that that's the the superior arm of their military forces well blenheim shows that it's not just the ships that can fight it's the men and particularly It's their generals. The men who are in charge are capable of doing great things. I can't recommend enough you to seek out more reading material on Marlborough, on the relationship between the Churchills and Queen Anne, on the relationship between Marlborough and Eugene. It's fascinating. They're just a weird and and eccentric and a brilliant group of people. Blenheim is the name of the, I think it was 250,000 pounds a year were given to Marlborough for his victory by Queen Anne. And he was, uh, he turned around and turned that into the palace at Blenheim, which is obviously named after the battlefield, but would go on to be the birthplace of his, uh, his greatest air i suppose uh, which would be one winston spencer churchill and uh, if anybody has pictures of the the place if they've ever traveled there please send them my way on instagram facebook or twitter i'd love to see it and uh, i'd love to be able to share some people uh, touring the the palace of blenheim i hope to one day make it there um Check us out on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Again, uh, we post a bunch of stuff on those. And I hope you enjoyed this particular episode. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with friends. Next up, we have the Battle of Marengo, one of Napoleon's earliest victories. And I can't wait to bring it to you. All right, you guys have a good rest of your week. Bye now.